everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Driven by Cause. We've got a great episode for you today, but I'd like to take a minute and give a quick shout out to our fantastic sponsors, Arriva and Microsoft, providing the industry with the only completely integrated and fully automated all-in-one digital fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software platform exceed further. I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Jay Fisk. How are you doing today, Jay? I am doing great, but more importantly, we have got a fantastic guest today. I can't wait to talk to him. Yes, we do have a fantastic guest. He is the president of the Center for Effective Philanthropy and the co-founder of Youth Truth. He's the author of Given, Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy, and Making Every Dollar Count which was the named the best philanthropy book of the year by Inside Philanthropy. He was named the Nonprofit Times Influencer of the Year, and he has been named 11 times to the Nonprofit Times Power and Influence by Top 50 list. He serves on the Board of Directors of Philanthropy Massachusetts and the National Council of Aging, where he chairs the Governance Committee. Please welcome Phil Buchanan, Thank you for being here with us today, Phil. Thank you, David, and thank you, Jay. Great to be with you both. Well, we're really excited to have you here with us today, and let's go ahead and get started. Phil, we'd love to, if you could just share a little bit about yourself and your journey. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a native Canadian, sort of. I was born in uh, Toronto, Ontario, but when I was six months old, my dad, uh, who was a professor, didn't get tenure at the University of Toronto, so... We moved to Portland, Oregon, and that's where I grew up uh, with my two brothers. Somewhere along, relatively early on in my childhood, I learned a lot from my dad's sort of activism and agitation to try to make a positive difference in the world. And and my mom, in her own way, did as, as well. For a long time, I thought I was going to be a journalist. That's what I really wanted to do. Uh, somewhere along the line, I realized just how hard that path is. Uh, and I ended up uh, after college working for a couple of college presidents as an assistant um, where I learned a ton about leadership. Uh, there's nothing quite like sort of being the lackey of someone in an important leadership role to teach you a lot about, oh, I would have done that differently. Uh, or, wow, that is amazing how they they handled that. And um, then I, I went to business school at a certain point. Uh, just because I wasn't sure what to do with myself. And that didn't really close off a lot of options. Um, and I worked in strategy consulting after getting my MBA in the corporate world for a little while. That didn't really float my boat. Uh, and so I had the opportunity um, to be the first um, executive director was the title then of the Center for Effective Philanthropy, which had a very little bit of money, a pretty dysfunctional founding board, to be honest. And uh, this idea that maybe we could help initially the audience was foundations to think about how they could be more effective in pursuit of their goals. Here I am now, uh, we've got an office in Cambridge, Massachusetts and an office in San Francisco, and I live out in, in Concord. Uh, so here you are. So as the CEO for the Center for Effective uh, Philanthropy, would you just take a moment and share uh, the center's uh, mission, why you believe it's so necessary today? Yeah, I mean, our our mission has um, evolved a little bit, as missions do. We provide data, feedback, programs, insights, 
now to help both individual and institutional donors improve their effectiveness. And the main reason why we think that's important is because it's hard uh, to be effective as a donor. Uh, and there's a lot of resources that aren't so readily available. And so we've tried to provide resources, you know, that are that are helpful to folks. I think maybe the thing that we're best known for is our research and assessment and advisory services that are aimed at foundations. So that includes research reports that track foundation practices, that benchmark uh, different approaches, but also survey-based feedback mechanisms like our grantee perception report, which allows a foundation to understand how the nonprofits it funds experience it in a comparative context. And we've got a bunch of other uh, feedback tools, but that's the one that's probably best known. And the reason it's important is because foundations, and it, this is true of big donors as well, reside in a kind of bubble of positivity in which they're surrounded by people uh, who need funds and therefore might have the tendency to tell those donors, whether institutional or individual donors, what they think they want to hear. And so you got to get creative about how you actually get candid uh, feedback that you can really act on and learn how are you being experienced by those you're supporting. Well, there's a lot of things about effectiveness and uh Phil, what do you believe makes an effective leader of a philanthropic organization? At, at, a, at a high level, CEOs need to be good at the external and the internal. And I find, in my experience, often folks are good at either one or the other. Uh, but it's really important to be good at both. Being an effective communicator of why your work matters, someone who could build support from donors, someone who could, when necessary, take a stand in the community or um, advocate for you know policy change that might relate to the work of the nonprofit. And somebody who can make sure that the internal culture and climate is one that contributes to effectiveness, that, that there is clarity about the goals and the strategies, um, that there is a evidence and data orientation to ask, how are we doing and how we can get better? You know, humility, I think, is really important for leaders, whether of nonprofits or, or foundations, especially for foundations, where the humility thing can just go right out the window pretty quickly when you're surrounded by, like I said, folks who tell you what they think you want to hear. But, um, you know, I am amazed by the nonprofit leaders that I've had the opportunity to get to know, both working on the book hosting the podcast that I host, Giving Done Right, with my colleague, Grace Nicolette. And I really think that nonprofit leaders and their staff are often unsung heroes in our society, doing incredibly valuable work. And yet there's a lot of like negative stereotypes about nonprofit leaders, most of which I think, you know, of course, any stereotype is true in some isolated cases, but most of which I think have no basis in reality. One of the things that I often say, because I just so believe it, is that Leading a nonprofit is harder than leading an equivalent size business. It takes everything it takes to lead a business, but then a ton more. I really try to encourage folks to recognize that and particularly donors to recognize that and support organizations and leaders in the way that they need to be supported. Well, let's talk about donors then, since you brought it up. Your book, Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count, uh, was named the best philanthropic book of the year by Inside Philanthropy. Uh, with so many philanthropic causes to contribute to, uh, how do you believe a donor should make a decision on, you know, uh, where, where to get their money? Well, first, I just want to concede that being na named the best philanthropic book in 2019 
you know, might be analogous to being named like the best vegan cookbook in 1952, like in the sense that there might not have been that much uh, competition, although there are more books about philanthropy than there used to be, uh, admittedly. So so did I put it in my bio? Yes, I did. Judge me. Um, anyway, so I think um, it's so it's tricky. I mean, at the at the highest level as a donor, let's assume that you're clear on your goals. You're looking for organizations uh, that share your goals. Obvious, I know, but uh, so much of giving is done responsively when people are asked, right? That they, at the end of the year or, or after the end of the year, they look back and say, why did I give to those organizations? Those aren't even the things that are more most important to me. And it's often just because they were asked, right? So making sure that your goals are, are driving your giving choices. And then within those goals, like you care about, let's say, uh, helping gang-involved young people um, to have better life outcomes, get out of gang life um, in a particular community. Well, then it's about what organizations are doing that work that have a strong case to be made that they're effective. Um, so that that they're following strategies that have been shown to work or that if they haven't, that they're gathering information to understand whether it's working or not. And so it's about the goals, it's about the strategies. And then the third component, which I guess I'm already alluding to, is sort of the learning and assessment that they are that they are seeking to gather information and, and to continually get, get better. So that's at the high, high level. Um, then I think if you're going to make a major, you know, contribution, uh, there's a bunch of other things you can look at. Um, you know, you, you might want to look at the governance structure. You might want to look at questions about uh, how they're attracting and retaining good people, but not necessarily punish an organization if they don't have it all together yet. Because one of the reasons, for example, that nonprofits have difficulty sometimes attracting and retaining good people is because donors don't give them enough flexible funding to allow them to pay what they need to pay or to plan in the way that, that they need to plan. So, I mean, that's just a high level. We could go way deeper on that question, but those are some of the things that I would encourage donors to think about. The last note would be not to rely on kind of crude metrics of sort of overhead or percentage on admin expenses that I think often don't actually tell you much uh, and, and can actually be inversely correlated with effectiveness. And maybe we can come back to that later. But people go to these rating sites where there's this desire to boil every nonprofit down to one metric. So almost like an analog to ROI or profit. And you're and it it really isn't a helpful way to approach it. Well, it's a follow-up to that. You know, I, with my own clients, I try and stress to them that you should be selling your mission. It's all about the mission because people will connect with the mission. So what should uh, organizations do to communicate to donors how effective their mission is? And, and how should an organization make sure they're making the most of every dollar spent in relation to the mission? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the first part of your question, my the answer would be almost the inverse of what I just said. So, you know, communicate clearly what your goals are as a nonprofit, communicate what your strategies are in a way that people can understand why you think they are likely to achieve the goals, communicate how you're assessing and gathering information about about what does and doesn't work. You know, and we need to be nuanced about this. One of the things that I think it's really frustrating and is this desire that folks have, it's understandable, but frustrating to kind of find the one way <laughs> to do this, right? And and so one of the 
one of the things that I, I talk about in Giving Done Right is like, to take the example I alluded to before, uh, an organization trying to recruit young people out of out of gang life. Well, you want to track what is the recidivism? You want to track, you know, what happens to those folks over time. But it's nuanced and complicated because uh, people might say, well, compared to what? You know, let's let's do a, a randomized control trial and 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 compare that population to a population that didn't receive that intervention. Well, sometimes that makes sense, but when you're working on life and death matters like gang involvement, probably doesn't make sense because it would involve denying service to people, you know, you could otherwise reach. So these things are so complicated. And then compare that, say, to the Children's Museum. And, you know, do we really think little David's life trajectory is changed 30 years hence from his fun trips to the Children's Museum? Of course not. The Children's Museum shouldn't be measuring what David's life is like 30 years later. It's much simpler. Maybe get some basic feedback on how, how people are experiencing the museum and how their visits were. And are you getting a demographically diverse population of folks? So, so the point is that this communication about how we're doing against our mission is totally tailored to what is the mission, right? And there's no formula or or sort of one one size fits all. So, and then this question of like, how do you know that every dollar is is spent well? One of the things I say that the subtitle of Giving Done Right is effective philanthropy and making every dollar count. And one of the points I make is a best one of the best ways to make every dollar count is not to try to count every dollar, to trust organizations whose goals overlap with yours, that they're in the best position to make judgments about how to allocate that money. So when donors come in and say, um, well, I want to support the food pantry, but I only want to support the broccoli and the chicken, not the rent for the place that is, you know, the the literal location of where the food is served, or not the salaries of the staff who recruit the volunteers who serve the food. This makes no sense, and it undermines nonprofit efficacy. But nonprofits play into this too because they'll they'll tout things like, you know. All your money goes to program because we have some board member who pays everything else or or whatever. Well, that just plays in to this, I think, mistaken notion that the one expenditure is more worthy than the other. It takes all of them to make the organization go and feed hungry people. And we should be encouraging that organization to invest in the technology, the staff salaries, that are required to do their work as effectively as possible. So I think we kid ourselves when we sort of play into this myth that the donor knows better than the nonprofit how to allocate resources within the nonprofit budget. I mean, that's just bananas, but it's a common uh, belief, I think. You know, shifting on the board side, we often hear the phrasing that nonprofit should be run like a business, specifically when it comes to your board. Phil, you've been open about the fact that you believe this is sentiment to be false. Can you share why you believe nonprofits boards should not be run and held to the same standards as a corporation's board? First of all, no sector has any special claim to standards. The term like a business actually is meaningless. Which one? Enron? The dry cleaner? Google? Uh, you know, Apple? At which point in its history, businesses rather are so vast and diverse that the 
the phrase run like a business doesn't really make sense. Should we be seeking to maximize, you know, profit? Well, no. I mean, like, so I think it's used as a shorthand for effective, but it isn't. And if you think about the last time you tried to call JetBlue or whatever, you know that it's not shorthand for effective, like a business, right? Um, and and so Jim Collins, I think, who's one of the few business gurus who really gets this, says most businesses, like most of everything in life, are mediocre. So why would we want to emulate, you know, why would we want to emulate the practices of mediocrity? And I think at the board level, to take, to, to go to your question, David, and really get into the nuance of it, if boards are operating with a sort of mindset that is informed by and derived from a competitive dynamic, they will do things that actually run counter to the nonprofit achieving its mission, right? So the dynamics within the nonprofit and philanthropic sector should be collaborative. They're not always, but they should be collaborative because really most complicated problems require myriad organizations working together to make progress rather than a business context where it's zero sum, like Uber's market share compared to Lyft, right? So to give an example, I'm on the board of the National Council on Aging. We have a relatively new, great CEO who has worked at the National Council on Aging, and then she worked at AARP for a little while, and then she came back to the National Council on Aging. Prior to her coming back, in some of our board conversations, people would talk about AARP as if it was like the enemy or a competitor, right? And you know, some of us would say, wait, don't they care about the life of older Americans, older adults also? Like, is it, and don't we, and don't we just do separate, like different things? We're each good at different things. We're not in competition with them. We are different parts of an ecosystem and both important. And, uh, you know, now that we have a CEO who's actually worked at both places, like she really gets that, right? But there is this tendency, it's like imbued in us, like everything is a competition and like, how are we doing relative to, you know, like what are the standings and where are we in the standings? But actually, you know, if you run homeless shelters, say, you will really want to have good relationships with the other homeless shelters so that when you're at capacity, you know, you can coordinate with them. And not only that, you're going to want to have good relationships with the substance abuse center when you're dealing with somebody who needs their help, right? It's just a very different dynamic than when I was a strategy consultant in the business world. And it was like, everything was very secret. And we didn't want anybody to know, you know, in the industry, the strategy that we had cooked up with the leadership of XYZ company. It's a totally different dynamic. Strategy is crucial in both domains, but it plays out really differently in a collaborative context versus a competitive context. And boards need to understand that. And then, and then I promise I'll stop on this question, but it's yeah. so important. Performance metrics, which we're already talking about, is the other place where when boards don't understand how much more complicated it is to assess performance. And they push for the analog to the metrics that they could see in a corporate boardroom. A lot of problems ensue, which is not to say that measurement isn't really important. It is. And that a board shouldn't ask, how are, how do we know how we're doing? They should, but they should do it with nuance and understanding of how different the sectors are and the contexts are. You know, COVID's created some of the biggest challenges in terms of fundraising and donor stewardship and required organizations truly to evolve and implement new ideas. I mean, constantly pivoting. Do you believe this has changed the landscape around fundraising? And if so, how? 
Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I am no expert in sort of the nonprofit fundraising function because I tend to work more on the advising donor side. But you think you see the the cool stories of, you know, and there was a ton of challenge and not every story was cool, but there were like really cool stories of people who, you know, for example, made their gala virtual, you know, and ended up uh, netting more money because you know the, all the donors showed up, but they didn't have the same same expense. Um, and so I, I think these kind of things open people's eyes to different ways of engaging donors, uh, different possibilities. I think that's good and that we should not, as we come back into this world of sort of post, hopefully pandemic world, not just default to what we were doing before. You know, I mean, even simple things like when do we travel? you know, to meet with a donor. And when do we not? It was so common, I think, in the when I worked in higher ed, you know, you'd have president of the college would get on a plane to go spend an hour with a major donor, you know, and like, does that really make sense? Or would there be more openness to just getting on Zoom now? But I think if you look at it from another side, there's been a lot that's come out in terms of change, come out of the the pandemic and the the racial justice reckoning of the summer of 2020, change in terms of how institutional donors are interacting with those who are trying to raise money from them. So, and we've documented this in our research, all of which is available free on our website, cep.org, more openness to providing unrestricted support and 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 a stated desire on the part of foundations to continue to provide more unrestricted support, more streamlining of processes, a stated intent to continue that into the future. So you have a lot of foundations, and I have experienced this as a grantee uh, that say, like, don't send us a report. Just get on Zoom with us and tell us how it's been going. That'll be fine. We'll write it up. I had a major foundation, one of the biggest in the country recently, said, don't send us a proposal. We want to renew you. All we need is a 45-minute conversation. I was like, what? Because this was so different from my experience over many years with this foundation. And, yeah. and the pandemic did that. I mean, it it opened people's eyes you know, to what non, the nonprofit experience was. There was a realization that you know, if you've got a nonprofit in a community that was hard hit by the pandemic, and let's say they were working with youth, and they were providing, uh, I don't know, after school in person programming, Mm -hmm. and their funding was just for that programming, it wasn't unrestricted support. And then the executive director is like, I don't know, can we use it for zoom programming? That's different than what it says in the proposal, let me call the funder. And then funders were like, Oh, my gosh, this is so silly. These folks are on the front lines. They are responding in communities to real crisis, and they're worrying about these restrictions that we put on a grant. We need to chill out and trust more. And I think that is huge. And I hope, 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 hope that it is sustained because I think there's this kind of distrust of nonprofits that comes through sometimes in the way funders interact with them. And I think that we could lead with more trust. I'm not saying blind trust. I'm not saying trust isn't earned. I'm not saying there's not some mutual accountability, but that we can be more trusting in the way that relationship unfolds. Phil, we live in a tumultuous time right now. This divide in our country continues to grow every day. Yeah. What role do you think philanthropy should play in uniting the nation and working towards um, hopefully a brighter future? I mean, that is the hardest question. And I, I, I'm I, really glad that you asked it and I cannot answer it. 
you know, like in a definitive way, it's too hard. It's a crucial, crucial question that everybody has to wrestle with. And so, you know, so there's so many elements of that question, Jay. Like one of the great things I think about the summer of 2020 is we saw people in the streets in numbers. They'd never been in the streets, different people than who'd ever thought they would be at yeah. a protest saying systemic racism is real, racial inequality is is real. It's a part of our history. It's a part of our present. It's been baked into policy that has led to certain outcomes. This is undeniable and true. It's fact. And what we have then seen is perhaps predictably somewhat of a backlash to that um, and a desire among some to equate a focus on racial equity, for example, with neglect for other issues or people, which is a false dichotomy. It's not true. Um, and book recommendation, Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, How Racism Hurts Us All, one of the best recent books I've read, which is an absolutely devastating refutation of that argument. Um, and, and actually quite an inspiring look at what is possible when people come together. But the tricky thing here now is that, you know, at the same time, you, of course, we do have more polarization, but we have this kind of interesting thing where people are trying to equate a focus on, you know, justice, like which should be uncontroversial with, oh, that's polarizing, you know? So, so how do you sort of like combat polarization while also staying rooted in facts and a focus on justice and equity and without normalizing extremism, right? So let's get people talking across difference, but maybe let's not put a white nationalist on the stage, right? Which which I literally saw, you know, a foundation do recently in an event that was about uh, combating polar polarization, because maybe you just gave that person exactly what they wanted uh, to, to reach people. So what are the bounds Within, we're, within which we're seeking common ground. On the one hand, we can't just preach to the choir. Um, and then on the other hand, we don't want to normalize uh, extremism and hate. And I think donors and nonprofits need to be thinking about this and that historically, nonprofits are one place that people do come together across divides, right? Like, you know, I think about organizations that I, I wrote about in the book, like uh, this organization called Epiphany Community Health Outreach Services in Houston and their they're helping the poorest people in a neighborhood and, you know, Hurricane Harvey hits and that's where people come and that's where the volunteers showed up. And nobody's asking like, oh, by the way, who did you vote for? It's not about that. I fear we're losing that spirit in this in this country. And so I think these are really, really important questions and that philanthropy needs to be thinking about them carefully and that there aren't easy answers. I'll just quickly add my own two cents worth because I've been dealing with nonprofits for 33 years in the gala, in the gala world. Yeah. It's almost impossible for me to identify a gala where I could have figured out what people's politics were, where their personal, right. what their personal issues were, because they were there for the common cause. And the common cause was the, the event uh, host. It, it was the mission of who was hosting the event. And that pulls from all parts of our uh, population, not just from specific uh, leanings one direction or the other, typically. Yeah, exactly. And those relationships are so important, especially as we've seen other places that historically, you know, people have come together, like organized religion, for example, 
you know, fewer folks are are coming together in that way. So where do people come together uh, and build those relationships? And I think your point is a really good good one that they do when they're coming out and supporting organizations in their community or in fields that they care about. And we really need to encourage that and encourage that kind of um, bridge building. Hey, Phil, as the yes. co-founder of Youth Truth, can you share with us, the listeners here, a little yep. bit about the initiative, why it's important to you specifically, and how you believe this is going to or can be effectively help students and educators? Yeah, absolutely. So Youth Truth, um, which is an initiative of CEP, but also has its own website, youthtruthsurvey.org, is about um, student and stakeholder feedback to drive school improvement. And it was born out of our relationship with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where we were surveying their nonprofits. And it was very helpful to them for all the reasons I alluded to before about not necessarily always getting candid feedback. And Comparative uh, feedback is really crucial. And uh, Faye Torsky, who is now the president of the Arthur Blank Family Foundation in Atlanta, but was then at the Gates Foundation, said, like, why don't you help us hear from the people who should matter most, the people whose lives we're trying to improve? And that led to an initiative that that started with their education grantees and then, and then became a national sort of effort um, to hear from young people about the school climate, about the relationship with teachers, about the perceived academic rigor, and so on. Why? Because it's really important for school leaders, district leaders, and education funders, as well as policymakers, to understand young people's experience. It's just the right thing to do to listen and to um, seek to understand, but also because their perceptions are predictive of outcomes, academic outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we see this, uh, we just had a third party study this, it's been confirming of other research that's been done, that there is a powerful link between how students are feeling uh, and then how they do. And so it's a really important leading indicator for education leaders, and again, for education funders. And, it, you know, so it's been vital, it allows you to see all kinds of crucial issues, including really sobering disparities in terms of, for example, how students of color experience the school discipline system uh, relative to white kids or um, or stories that are particular to a district or a school where one grade or one type of student is having a more or less positive experience in various ways. So this data is incredibly valuable, but it also changes the dynamic in a school, as kids realize that they have a voice and one of the most powerful things, and this happens a fair amount, is when the school leadership and district leadership actually decides to involve young people in the schools in, in making sense of the data and figuring out what to do about it. And there's just great stories of that kind of, kind of change happening. Um, and then we're always trying to get education funders to pay attention to this too, because I think whatever your philanthropic strategy is, it is vital that you understand how those you seek to help experience it. Not to presume that we can know better what others need, but to understand you know, what their experience is. Crystal ball time. What are some of the most significant uh, changes you've seen in the philanthropic world? But more importantly, what do you think the future looks like for nonprofits? Well, I think that on the giving side, I think there's a big question as to whether these changes will be sustained. Some of the mo most important changes have been the new openness to providing more unrestricted support, the questioning of default practices about proposals and reporting, 
um, the engagement with racial equity in a different way. So the realization that like, if you're a donor and you're working in the, any issue area, there is a, in my view, a systemic racism story. And it's not my view. The data tells us that, right? So if you're working in the environment and you're not paying attention to the fact that people of color are much more likely in this country to be living next to pollutants than white people, then you're not fully engaging the issue. If you're working in education and you're not looking at the kind of school discipline disparity data that I just described, then you're not you know, going to make the difference that you could. If you're working in criminal justice, obviously, there is a dynamic that's related to race. And I don't mean to focus only on race. There's, there's often a gender dynamic. There's issues in terms of um, gender identity, LGBTQ people. Like We have to look at those questions. And I think donors and foundations are doing a bit more of that than they were. And I hope that that is sustained and goes, goes much, much deeper. In terms of nonprofits, you know, there's so many ways to answer that question, but I will just answer it with my biggest worry. Um, and my my biggest worry is the declining rates of household giving in this country and how that will affect nonprofits for the long haul. So we know that, you know, it is often the case that when Giving USA comes out, you know, it's a higher number than it's ever been. But if you look underneath that, it's not being driven by sort of regular individual donors. Um, and in fact, individual giving, you know, has been relatively flat. And the percentage of the total giving pie that is individuals is lower than it was 20 years ago. The percentage that is foundation giving, you know, has gone from 12% to like about 18%, you know. So I'm worried that we're losing and that this will be really problematic for nonprofits this sort of cultural norm, it goes to the earlier question we were talking about, about just connectedness to each other and to our community, the norms about giving um, in this country. And I think the work that you all do is really important in this regard to try to encourage people to give and to try to uh, reverse that trend. But I think that's what comes to mind. Phil, you have an incredible experience and you have a really great insight. As you are looking ahead, um, can you share where you hope to continue making the biggest impact? Well, I would like to be at least one person along with many others, you know, like you all and others who are doing something to try to encourage giving, right? To tell the story, you know, to make the case, um, whether for specific organizations or just for the broader sector. Like I, I hope to do that and then to help givers to be more effective and think more deeply about, about some of these really difficult issues, whether it's equity, like we've been talking about, or polarization, or the relationship between those issues, the future of our democracy, all of those things are really important. And I hope to play play a role, you know, some small role, right, in, in that. It's going to take a bunch of us. That's what motivates me, because like fundamentally, I think I believe that if markets could solve all our problems, we wouldn't have any problems. They'd be solved, right? I'm very wary of the folks who say, well, we just need market-based solutions to everything, you know? Mm. Like that's not gonna, that's not gonna do it. There's some things that actually are a result of market failure, right? And then we have other folks who say, well, you know, everything that nonprofits are doing, you know, government should do. Government has all the answers. You know what? Uh, do they really? And we've seen some of that critique in the last few years from folks who are suggesting wild generalizations, like, you know, philanthropy is just a ruse to, you know, keep bad systems in place. And, you know, people just pay their taxes and not even give. And I'm like, really? 
you're you're saying government is what is who should decide everything and you're you're saying this in the middle of you know a period and i don't want to get too political here but but this was being said in the middle of a period where we had one of the most in my opinion the most dysfunctional situation in 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 dc under trump in the history of the country and and frightening and like who do you think was at the border like trying to help families not to be broken up uh, and kids not to be separated from their parents. It was nonprofit supported by philanthropy, right? So I think we have to remember that this sector at distinct as a distinct force, separate from government and business, sometimes working collaboratively with them, sometimes holding their feet to the fire is a really positive thing. And I just want that to be appreciated. And I feel like we're running uphill a little bit on that one. And it worries me. Yeah. We, uh, we always like to let our audience get to know our guests on a personal level a little bit. What's something about you that might surprise our listeners to find out about you? I you, I did have advance warning that I was going to be asked this question. And I have to say, it caused me tremendous anxiety because uh, I, I, I am like the least surprising person you'll ever meet, but I'll, I'll try, I'll try to answer that question. I have a really a great family. My wife, Lara, is uh, a psychotherapist with works with um, kids and teenagers, and then two daughters, a senior in high school and a senior in college, and and they're fantastic. And none of that is surprising. But I think maybe what uh, I realized is is maybe more of a gift in my life than I had known until I saw how uncommon this actually is. I have two brothers uh, who are like literally my best friends. Uh, they're just the, been huge forces in my life. And even though we live far from each other, I think we text every day. And uh, one of them is a is a appellate uh, state court state judge in California, uh, and the other one is a, a lawyer um, at, at a employment law firm in Oregon. Um, and yeah, so I just I feel like th th those two guys are are you know the people I talk to about any really important decision. You know, my wife first, but and and my kids, but then they're they're a close second. Right. Well, well Dave has got another surprise question for you coming up. Okay. Yeah, but I hope this doesn't cause too much anxiety um, <laughs> because we just always like to finish off by asking, and, and Phil, you've had so many great things to share with our audience, but what is something that I didn't ask you or Jay didn't ask you that you wish we did ask you? Well, the only thing that comes to mind there is a question about, it, it's not so much that you didn't ask me, is that I didn't, I didn't say this clearly enough. Um, when you you asked a question about leadership and what does it take to be a good leader, and and I think that there's a question in there that I I, I kind of skated by, like embedded within that, which is about culture, organizational culture, and um, I have been in the same organization for for 21 years, which some people would argue is you know too long. What are you doing? But I've had the incredible gift of working with some of the same people for many many years. I have colleagues who have been here almost as long as I have in key leadership roles. I didn't realize when I took this job is that just as important to me as the work we do would be the kind of place we are to work. And so we're not perfect. We've got our issues. But one of the things that I do think we have is a really strong culture with a lot of mutual respect and trust and openness and opportunity for people to contribute. And even if they started yesterday, you know, to say what their ideas are. And I think that's something that I'm just sort of proud of. I don't know. Am I bragging now? But that we have a wonderful culture. But no, I'm not because it's not me who created it. It's just a, it's been an effort of many of us. 
And I feel like sometimes we don't talk about that stuff enough in the nonprofit world. We're so focused on the mission that we can actually burn people out. And it's a big issue now. I think there's a lot of folks in our society struggling with feeling burnt out with mental health issues, you know, and just creating the kind of place that people really want to work and where we take care of each other and where we step up for each other when things are hard. Like, I'd love to see more conversation in the sector about those kinds of issues. And again, we've made mistakes. I've personally made plenty of mistakes, but I try to learn from them. But really, really recognizing how important that is. People spend so much time at work. A lot of people spend more time with their coworkers than they do with their family, at least for periods of time. And uh, and just focusing on making that a good experience and really caring for every individual that we work with. What a, what a nice message. Thanks, Phil. What a, what a great way to almost end this. But I, I want to thank you for your time today. And we'll be right back after this. We are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades. We pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose. Software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause. We are relentlessly dedicated to our client's success. We are with our clients for good. We are Ariva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Ariva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software, text-to-bid, virtual and mobile bidding software, and text-to-fund, text-based donation software are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and galas. Visit Ariva.com and reach out today and see how Ariva can help your nonprofit organization go further. Hey, everyone, and welcome back. So the next part of our show, we're going to hear, hear from the audience. It's time to ask the maestro. Jay, what questions do you have for us today? Well, David, our, our audience has sent us some great questions today. We've uh, we've picked two. Our first question comes from Denise, and she writes saying, I've had odd reactions to thank you calls to donors. It's almost like they were uncomfortable to be called. Do donors appreciate a personal call? So Phil and David, what do you think? Isn't the answer it depends? On the person, uh, that is probably always worth tr worth uh, tr trying to give folks a call. But if you get a sense that that's not what they want, uh, then maybe try and do it a another way. That would be my instinct. But again, you're you're the experts here. Yeah, you know, Phil, it's it's it it, it is the there's no right or wrong answer on this, and I I think a lot is not said. Um, I, I think we've been used to receiving a thank you by an email or or a text and i think we've lost over time that personal with technology and the internet and i i think it's just not that we're uncomfortable it's just it's odd sometimes as a donor myself i remember i registered for an event and, and this was a personal thing and immediately the executive director called me and said, hey, I wanted to thank you. And it stunned me. I literally was stunned. I've got to be honest with you. And I think a lot of people have that same type of reaction. But I think deep down, it's as much as it may come off on the other side of the phone or in person sometimes, 
uh, I don't know if uncomfortable equates with the appreciation that you made that call. And I would strongly recommend to continue making those calls to donors. It, it's such a personal touch. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people just are not expecting it. And, and that's the only reason why. And I'm going to pipe in. I'm going to pipe in and put my two cents worth in on this. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying thank you too early or too often. I'm a big believer of that. But I also know that nearly every one of the nonprofits have a CRM system or DRM system of some kind, and, and it, it accepts notes. And so there's nothing wrong with putting into that into that uh, software a little note that says likes personal follow-up, does not like personal follow-up, do not call, please call. Those are things that we ought to be tracking so that we are appropriately thanking people. They may not wish to have that personal call, do not want to be bothered. That should be in the uh, in the database. That's a, that's a very good point too, Jay. Thank you. So Jay, this next question comes from Sierra and she writes in asking, last year we had an online only silent auction. The planning committee decided that they wanted to have an in-person only silent auction this year. And I'm not sure if that is the right decision or not. It depends on who you're inviting. If you are inviting people that want to come and shop and have some wine and a couple of appetizers and 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 buy a few things, then that's probably appropriate. However, you're trying to appeal to a a broad base of of supporters. Many of those supporters could care less about bidding on a silent auction item because they don't they won't buy things in the silent auction. They may care about mm -hmm. bidding on higher ticket items in a live auction, or they may care about not bidding on or buying anything at all, but rather raising their paddle and making a cash contribution. So you're denying them. It's sort of like having a fancy restaurant that you're going to go to. You're going to spend time setting up your gala. You're going to have you know, decorations. You've got a theme. You're going to invite people. You're going to get everybody together. You're going to have a location. You know, and then you're it, and and you're going to bring them into this into this uh, gala situation. It'd be like having a fancy restaurant where you decide that particular night that the restaurant's only going to serve salad. And so, you know, if you show up at that fancy restaurant expecting a steak and they're only serving salad that night, you go away disappointed. Say, gosh, I would have spent a lot of money if they merely served a steak. So I think galas are a lot like that. You're dealing with a wide variety of people that are in, being invited to support you. Give them a way to support you. Don't deny them a way to support you. Let them bid if they want to bid in the silent. Let them bid in the live if they want to bid. If their contribution is is uh, you know buying some raffle tickets, let them do it. If their contribution is merely raising their paddle and making a $500 or $1,000 or $2,500 contribution, let them do it. So I would caution against limiting the way a donor has to give you the help that they came to give you. I think we're all organizationally with various events, right? It's kind of struggling with this question of, you know, what did we learn that we that we liked that we want to keep? And I, I think options are really important. And then and then recognizing that, you know, for some folks, I mean, so for people with disabilities, for example, th there were real advantages to being just on Zoom and feeling like I can engage, you know, without having to go through what I might have had to go through Otherwise, you know, and on the other hand, we don't want to deny people who want to be together in person that opportunity, of course, you know, so just just trying to think that all through, just kind of like you said, Jay, I think, and make sure that um, people have options and different ways to engage, you and, know, it's important. And Phil, here's what we found out of out of the pandemic. We found that 
people will engage to an extent in the virtual world, but they still, coming out of the pandemic, everybody was chomping at the bit to get back in the room. Right. But there's still people that are reluctant to go back in the room. So what, what the nonprofits have learned is that it's okay to have a silent auction that's longer than an hour and a half. It's okay to start the silent auction on Wednesday and close it on Saturday at the gala. Right. And uh, we have several that are going on like that right now. It reduces the amount of time you have to allocate the night of the event to your silent auction because you're not force-fitting all the bidding into that limited cocktail hour. You now can give people two, three, four days to bid in the silent auction and then wrap it up with maybe a, a one-hour cocktail party the night of the event, then move into dinner, then do your live auction, do your raise the paddle, you know, play your games, that kind of thing, have your testimonial uh, presentation and let people go away having the ability to select which or which of the ways of give you money they choose to give you. But for those that aren't going to come to the gala, geographic issue, out of town business issue, whatever it might be, they still can participate in the silent auction. And that's what we've learned out of the pandemic that we would not, not even attempted prior to the pandemic. So that's a good, that's a good positive result from there. Makes a lot of sense. I think we are about done and we, and we thank you very much for, for your time, uh, Phil. Uh, and any parting words from you, David, before we say goodbye to this wonderful guest? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to thank you, Jay. Um, you're always uh, such a great contributor. And I want to especially thank Phil. Phil, you've been truly amazing. Uh, you've shared so many great ideas, so many great insights. And I appreciate you looking, you know, and sharing your thoughts of where the road is going or potentially going. And it was really fantastic to have you join us today. So I, I really thank you for that. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you both. It was fun. I was going to remind the listeners that if they have questions for the maestro, which probably what you were about to say, if you have questions and you want to submit those questions, by all means, uh, please do. And perhaps your question will be heard on a future episode of uh, Driven by Cause. Yeah, Jay, thanks for that reminder. It is great to hear from our audience and get those questions. So to, to continue with our listeners, make sure you subscribe to stay up to date on all the new episodes and content. I also want to give special thank you to our amazing sponsors, Arriva and Mastersoft, who are dedicated to their missions, tech with the purpose, driven by cause. We're so proud to be working with them on this new show. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to all of our fantastic listeners. We hope you join us next time on Driven by Cause. Make it a great day.